Welcome to Sapiens Talk Back, a new podcast series brought to you by the Archaeology Center's Coalition and Radio Siams at the Cornell Institute of Archaeology and Material Studies. This series has been developed in partnership with Season 4 of the Sapiens Podcast in order to discuss new approaches to changing archaeology's stories and who tells them. Our goal is to dig deeper into the pressing issues that the Sapiens series raises for the practice of archaeology. My name is Maya Diedrich, and I am the Hirsch Postdoctoral Associate in the Cornell Institute for Archaeology and Material Studies. And I'm Aisha Martin, a PhD student in the history of art at Cornell University and also a member of the Cornell Institute of Archaeology and Material Studies. In this episode, we welcome the featured guest from episode two of Sapiens season four for a conversation on the role that maritime archaeology can play in defining an archaeology of liberation. Justin Dunavent is assistant professor of anthropology at UCLA and a co-founder of the Society of Black Archaeologists. Welcome, Professor Dunavent. Thank you for having me here. Glad to be here. Joining us as well is Ayana Flulin, assistant professor in the Department of Anthropology at the University of California, Riverside, and also a co-founder of the Society of Black Archaeologists. Welcome, Professor Flulin. It's wonderful to be here. Thank you. We are also fortunate to be joined by Gabrielle Miller, a PhD student studying African diaspora archaeology at the University of Tulsa. Welcome, Gabrielle. It's a pleasure to be with you. Thank you for having me. We are also very pleased to be joined today by two graduate students from Archaeology Center's coalition member institution that will help guide our conversation. They will introduce themselves in the course of our discussions. In addition to probing the issues raised in episode two of the Sapiens series, we will also be discussing insights provided by two recent publications by our guests. The first co-authored by Ayanna Fluellen and Justin Donovan, along with Alicia Odawale, Alexandra Jones, Sionwold Michael, Zoe Crossland, and Maria Franklin is entitled, The Future of Archeology span is Anti-Racist, Appearing in American Antiquity, in 2021. The second, entitled Have Confidence in the Sea, is by Justin Dunavent and appeared in 2020 in Antipode. Let me start the conversation going today with a question. While listening to the podcast and preparing our readings for today, I noticed a focus on documentation and geography. Would any of you like to comment further on how maritime archaeology is adding to Black geographic presence, as Dr. Donovan wrote in his 2020 paper, and how maritime archaeology is adding to it in a way that is liberatory. Yeah, I'll jump in on that question. I think it's it's important that we understand the big question in the work that we do is to uncover and to recover the experiences of African peoples in the Atlantic world, um, specifically in this work that we do. Traditionally, that has been a focus on the transatlantic slave trade when we speak about regards to water and waterways, because in many cases when Black people's experiences appear in the written records, it's often as a result of the transatlantic slave trade. And many scholars have written about the violences that occur from archives, um, the ways in which they're reproduced through uses of stale statistics and of quantifying individuals and peoples. 
But maritime archaeology actually has a way for us to explore deeper and to ask critical questions that don't necessarily appear in the written record. Um, part of the work that I was trying to do in that article, Have Confidence in the Sea, was to explore another element of the African diaspora experience on the water through what could be considered um, maritime experiences of liberation in this case. And these were formerly enslaved individuals who fled the islands in which they were enslaved and made their way to new islands and new possibilities. Uh, we have limited written and archival records from it. So in this case, I used actually evidence of ocean current patterns today to postulate what may have occurred during that time. And then I think maritime archaeology specifically allows us to look at yet another archive um, that we can begin to explore some of these questions. And some of them may be related to the transatlantic slave trade, but some of them may also be related to other elements of fishing and life on the water in general. So I'm excited to see as new questions emerge and as more maritime archeologists are trained and as new sites become recovered and discovered that we begin to look at how we can expand this notion of, of liberatory ways through maritime archeology. span um, and if I could add to that, you know, as Justin alluded, these spaces are really compartmentalized when we think about what is a Black geography and what are Black spaces of being. Um, and we can also extend that to reframing the spaces that have already been discussed in the literature terrestrially. We think of plantation spaces. We think of spaces that center Black livelihood around labor. But when we go into the water, we also reframe how people live their lives both on and off the water, we can start thinking of Black livelihood as spaces that extend much further past labor. You know, I think mainly about the research that I'm doing alongside the community in Fredericksted St. Croix, but also when we talk about reframing those narratives, we look at the water that is nearby to these residences. Is this connected to what people may have been doing loading and offloading boats? Or is this also a space where people played, recreated, laundered, saying, you know, and so when I look at the work that my colleagues are doing and myself, it really looks like shifting the space that we can all observe and looking at it with different eyes. Yeah. And just to add to what both of my brilliant colleagues have just articulated, I feel like this work is really bringing archaeology in conversation with Black geographies, right? And I think more deeply about Catherine McKendrick's work in Demonic Grounds and what she's really reaching towards is searching for the ungeographic, which is what I believe Justin Donovan really does in that piece so beautifully. Is really, as Gabrielle mentioned, articulating these ungeographic spaces, these spaces that have not been documented, mapped, and it's really pulling in the fantastic work, not only of Black geographies, but also Kevin Dawson's work around undercurrents of power and really thinking about African diasporic aquatic life ways and trying to transform the narrative that we often see in African diasporic studies of the Atlantic, the oceanic space itself being a space that's primarily just of Black death, which is how it most clearly is articulated, especially when you think about the millions of individuals that were lost at sea during the Middle Passage. But this work is really trying to envision um, alternative possibilities of Black life in the Atlantic and the ocean itself as being the sort of animate space for those possibilities. 
So I'm really excited about the ways in which that really comes forth, not only in Justin's work, but in Gabrielle's work. And then also thinking more broadly about some of the newer projects that Justin and I are working on, on Black waterscapes, really once again, trying to reconceptualize the Atlantic as a space of Black life. Hi, my name is Lauren Clark. I'm a PhD student at the University of California in San Diego, and I'm a member of the Scripps Center for Marine Archaeology. I kind of building on that last question, you know, in terms of your discussion on the marine communities um, in the Caribbean, how does the additional invisibility of the Black and Indigenous communities fit into the challenges that are already faced in the discussion of the visibility of marine and drowned landscapes um, in terms of kind of an out of sight, out of mind context? And especially since there are increasing amounts of drowned landscapes that are not just ancient landscapes, but also more recent historic landscapes. Yeah, I'll jump in and take that one. I think, you know, it's it's an ecosystem of of knowledges, of geographies, and of histories. I think as individuals are displaced from the physical geography, so too are their histories and memories. As climate change is impacting shorelines and shoreline erosion and sea level rise, so too is it causing terrestrial sites to become submerged and to also submerge those histories and these geographies. I think what we have to do is take an encompassing system of approach to try to address all of these things. And um, that's things that we've talked about in some of the work that we do is you can't talk about recovering Black history if we don't also talk about climate change and sea level rise because it's literally impacting the the material ancestral remains and belongings that we are trying to recover underground and in the water. And so I think the the sort of beauty of this work is recognizing the relationship between the past, present, and the future and forcing us to think about all of these things at the same time and to hold them in conversation together. And for me, that's exciting because it forces us to rethink archaeology as a discipline and forces us to inherently do interdisciplinary work and to actively seek out and recruit those voices and those experiences that aren't physically expressed in the communities today or may have been displaced historically or in some cases are there, but for whatever reasons, um, voices aren't amplified. So um, I'm excited to see the ways in which we can bring all those together to address all of those multiple issues at the same time um, and collectively. Hi, everyone. I'm Aisha Martin. To sort of, you know, take from when you, uh, you, Professor Donovan, talked about time and space, if I could ask the both of you, you, Professor Donovan and Professor Flewlin, about the notions and importance of time and space, especially when you quote from Edward Glissant's book, The Fourth Century, and especially in the work that the both of you do in unearthing and excavating uh, Black history and, and uh, maroon histories, how important, and we know it is important, but how do you sort of bring it in into your everyday practice? Um, <laughs> I would say, you know, for me, the work that we do is inherently connected. There's no distinction between past and present. And I think that that's something that we need to critically interrogate the fact that there literally is a thread that's past and present. There's no distinction between the two. One way in which we actually do that in our work, I think, is from the very beginning is pouring libations at sites. Part of that work of pouring libations before we even start excavations is to literally bring individuals and spirit and community into the present, into the situation through a conscious awareness that those two exist. 
from there, we can start to have conversations around how things that may have happened historically impact things that happen contemporarily and how we can then guide what things happening now might inform some of the work we do in the past. So I think, you know, just um, the whole idea of some of the work I'm doing exploring the ecological and environmental impacts of the transatlantic slave trade came about because I was recognizing there's a community living in St. Croix as an entire island in a U.S. territory that is grappling with environmental issues that are caused by these extensions of colonialism. I think if I didn't experience that in contemporary times, I wouldn't have thought to ask that question historically. So in those ways, we're trying to blend and merge this idea of time and space in ways where they're informing each other and they're working together as opposed to treat it as two distinct things. Yeah, I think building on Justin's sharing, especially with the work that we're doing in St. Croix, I'm reminded of the ways that time really collapses in in the Caribbean, and it's really just built on top of itself. So in St. Croix, you can literally walk past buildings that are 100, 200, 300 years old, and people are still living in them. So there's the kind of continuity on the landscape that requires you to understand how time is literally collapsed atop of itself. And there are really beautiful ways that artists are taking this charged and and really making really beautiful abstract art around it and and especially with material culture that's being recovered on St. Croix and we can talk more about that as well but it would be impossible to sort of think about doing archaeological work on St. Croix and really broadly in the United States but on St. Croix specifically at this site without the consideration of the fact that people are still navigating, living, interacting with the space daily, right? So there are ways that doing this work without community involvement feels like an impossibility in that regard. And doing this work without an understanding that it quite literally is impacting people who are living on that space today, impacting people who interact with that space today, it just doesn't, it literally doesn't make sense in my head to even try to do that. And in that way, it really speaks once again towards the Sapiens podcast, Our Past is the Future, this understanding that the work that we're doing is really uncovering histories in the past, but it has a direct implication and impact on the present. And it's directly involved in how we imagine the sort of futurity of Black and Indigenous populations. So that really is at the center, I would say, of the work that I'm doing, Justin's doing, and certainly the work that Gabrielle is doing in St. Croix. Yeah, and what Ayana and Justin have said really resonates with both this question and the previous question that was asked, which both allude to the fact that archaeology is not segregated from the present or even the future. I think that traditionally archaeology has promoted an idea of being unbiased or being something that is cut off from the politic of the present, of the future. But, you know, I think within our personal identities, we do not have the luxury of pretending like our very beings are disconnected. And so to the communities that we work with and that we study and live with. And so when we look at the questions that we ask and the ways that we embody the work that we do, we can't do so divorced from how that might impact the present and our abilities to continue living lives in the future. And there's so much wisdom in meshing these things together into continuing 
to learn from the very real and similar trials that our ancestors went through, all of that sort of works together to bring us to a future where we can continue in this ritual of living um, and growing together. And I just want to reiterate something that Gabrielle brought up, which she so clearly articulated. I remember in her SHA 20, maybe it was 2020 presentation, right before 2019. It was 2019. You see how time just passes. But at that particular conference, she stated that it is a privilege when you don't actually have to consider the political implications of your research, that that is actually a space of privilege. And that for Black and Indigenous archaeologists, we do not have that luxury. There's a real understanding that the work that we do is never in service of ourselves or the institutions that we're affiliated with, but is always directly impacting the lives of Black and Indigenous populations that live and interact with the sites that we're excavating yearly. Yes, it is wonderful to be in this space with you all. Uh, My name is Jordan Griffin. I am a Black feminist archaeologist and a doctoral student at the University of California, San Diego. Relating to Aisha's question and to libations and ritual, how can we use archaeology as a tool to work towards liberation, uh, which I tie to rest, joy, pleasure, autonomy, imagination, and remembrance? How can we and how do you make archaeology ritual? I just like to sit with that last part. How do you make archaeology ritual? Wow, that's a powerful question, Jordan. Thank you. When I think about archaeology as a liberatory practice, I turn to the fact that for all three of us, so for Justin, myself, and for Gabrielle, we really center the theoretical frameworks of our work in Black studies, right? And Justin has written more about this, and it's articulated in that American Antiquity piece as well around how African diaspora archaeology really rooted in Black studies scholarship roots itself in social justice, which is what Black studies in this country is founded on, right? So the work that we do in that framework grounds itself in the quest for liberation, in the quest for justice, in the sort of practice of redress, and the redress being the attempt to provide um, historical narratives of Black life, right? when so much of what we are taught, when so much of the imagery we are presented with around African diasporic past is that of death, when the nuance and complexity of it is how people lived through such circumstances. So in that way, whenever I'm talking about the work that I do, especially on sites of enslavement, I talk about this work as being a practice of unearthing Black life. And I do that in the way of really searching for, as Jordan, you mentioned, the ways in which people carved out spaces of joy, spaces of love, spaces of community. Those are the spaces of Black life that existed in the past that we continue to carve out today and that we envision as spaces of strength and survival in the future. And with that at hand, I feel like the work that we do as scholars really allows us to root ourselves in Black life and Black living practices, right? So yeah, maybe I'll stop there and allow some of my colleagues to jump in. I really am reflecting on the way that you talked about nuance and complexity and thinking about what is what we do archeologically, how do we address nuance and complexity? We peel back layers. And so, 
in what Ayana was saying about where we center our work within Black liberatory practices, we address the nuance and complexity of both modern and past Black life by peeling back the layers. And so when I think about my archaeological practice, any text that I approach, instead of centering it in what is an archaeological way of knowing that I can apply to the subject, I say, how can I use archaeology as a tool and as a method to peel back this anthology, to peel back this song, to peel back this oral history, to peel back even the complex layers of artwork, of um, even somebody's physical presence. I think that just as we sense in so many ways here in this world now, you know, with our physical beings and mentally, we stop ourselves from necessarily viewing people in the past the same way. Um, and by we, I'm, I'm not talking as myself, my colleagues, but as, you know, archaeology is a discipline. And so if we think of archaeology as a tool rather than the center in which um, knowledge is produced, I think that it allows us to change, you know, how we apply it to the things that we learn and recognize that um, the complexity and the layers of those that live before us deserves that deep inspection and detective work. Yeah, and I think that this this is a critically important question at this moment specifically, this moment in time, this social context that we find ourselves in, because there's a lot of discussion about liberation and what it means. And I think we all need to meditate on what that is and what that means, which in many cases requires organizing collectively with contemporary communities around contemporary issues. It means going back and reading Franz Fanon. It means reading Asada Shakur and Angela Davis and the things that they were talking about in their quests for liberation and then really defining for ourselves what liberation is and what it means. And for me, liberation has meant us having the ability to fully express ourselves uh, in a manner that's healthy for ourselves, our communities, and for the world in which we find ourselves in. And even arriving at that definition took me years of trying to figure out what is actually liberation and what are we fighting for. Once we can define that, then we ask ourselves, how does archeology span contribute to that? Realizing that archaeology isn't the only solution and is by no means the way in which we will necessarily uh, get all of our freedom. <laughs> I think that would be idealistic, but we can see the ways in which we can contribute to it by uncovering additional narratives like the, the books I just mentioned and the people's stories we need to study. We can uncover narratives of other people who don't necessarily have the text to tell their stories. It could also mean a change in methodological practice, whereby as we uncover some of these issues of colonialism that we explore, we then offer ourselves up to begin to work towards fixing and addressing um, and bringing out some of these issues. Um, so it could be shoreline erosion and coral restoration work, for example. All of those things, I think, work together towards a goal of liberation. I think one of the things I've noticed amongst colleagues and students is there's often this hang up where we think we have to take on everything at the same time and offer some sort of solution that's all encompassing and realizing that one, having care for ourselves and recognizing our rest, joy, and pleasure and our emergent strategies as we can enact them. It's important that we recognize that we are doing things in the ways that we do them, but we are by no means required to fix a system that has developed over 400 years and likely will not be dismantled in less than 400 years. So it's a long process and a long game, but I think as we collectively work towards it, we'll be inching closer and closer to that goal.
Yeah, absolutely. And just to add on to that, Justin's comment made me think about the work of Sinclair Drake, who during the Black Power Movement often had conversations with himself around doing this liberatory work in the ivory tower as an academic and what it means to actually have that sort of aesthetics of your involvement in this movement work and how there, as Justin mentioned, are several ways to work towards liberation. And we all, as people love to say, we all have our lanes and we can really master the lanes that we're in with the work that we want to do. And I also just want to say that there was never a point in time, especially within African diaspora archaeology, that this work was not political. It having been, you know, founded really during the late 1960s, 1970s in this country has always been tied to Black liberation movements. And with the rise of more people of African descent actually engaging in these practices and demanding that the scholarship then be in direct conversation with work being done by Black scholars, I feel like there are these new articulations that are coming out around how we do this work, um, the methods, the theory, but also the ways in which we can conceive of this and the larger sort of practices towards Black liberation. This is Maya again. I wanted to follow up on that conversation about the Black studies role and decentering archaeology as a tool and looking towards other fields that have a lot to offer and ask and provide a space for you to elaborate a bit on changes in the field that could be inspired in conversation with those beyond the field, such as artists as came up briefly earlier, even scuba divers from diving with a purpose and others. And so would you be willing to share another example of how ideas from these other skilled communities could contribute to the kind of liberation previously discussed and also conservation practice? Yeah, I think it's, um, it's, it's important that we constantly hold these things in conversation with each other. I would be remiss if I didn't recognize that all three of us <laughs> that are technically like, are being interviewed here um, do artistic work to some degree. You know, Gabrielle is an amazing ceramicist. Ayana does jewelry and a lot of collage work. And I've been experimenting with some things around collage and, and so forth. And I think for all of us, that practice is directly tied to our archaeological work as well, in terms of the ways in which we take what we learn from those spaces, we experiment with ideas around what dress and adornment looks like, um, not to put words in Ayana's mouth, but <laughs> how those things all come together in the, in the present and through the, the actual making and materiality of it, I think is critically important. I'm drawn to artistic work and its contributions to what we do because of the ways in which artists are able to theorize and convey very complex understandings of the world around them, of past and present, in a way that is translated into, in some cases, visual, audio, or other types of, of artistical works. And those translate to communities that might not ever even pick up a book that any of us write, um, but deal with many of the same concepts. There's also many things that I'm trying to think through that can't necessarily be conveyed in words, that some of the concepts in which they use to develop the artistic practice is what employs me to, to explore further um, some of those nuances as well. And uh, the beauty of it too is, you know, artistic works transcends many identities as well. So there are collaborative arts works that are conducted. There's also a brilliant scholars from different backgrounds that are theorizing and contributing to these conversations um, around some of the issues that we're exploring. And they might come from other island contexts, for example, or they may come from 
from other identities and having all of them contribute to one conversation, I think makes all of our practice better and just reinforces this idea that we have so much left to explore and so many more different ways by which to look at these things that we have been told have already been studied. I really appreciate how Justin gave us all our artistic shout outs. You know, but I think really what he's talking about is reflecting how we bring our whole selves into the work that we do. You know, as somebody that loves the ceramic arts, it certainly impacts what I look at and how my imagination works in the field. You know, I definitely am drawn to ceramics and look at things like decorative genre and motifs and sort of try to put myself in the shoes of who would have made these choices and why, not just economically, but you know, for the aesthetic, for the um, emotions that it brings up or that it um, translates for that individual, why they might choose that. Um, But I also think of not just for myself, how I bring my own self into the field, but for the people that I've worked with in St. Croix, the nonprofit that I work with, Chant, employs artisans into using traditional practices as far as woodworking and many other artistic elements to respond to the past and the present and being able to work with these artisans archaeologically in the field I got to witness how they brought their whole selves as artists in their own right into how they use the imagination of what may have happened in the past and how we look at it it really transforms you know I think some of the approaches that become common in our field and it also makes me think of Um, not just in diving with a purpose, but in my favorite part of diving with a purpose, which is youth diving with a purpose, seeing Black and Brown youth who are approaching diving in the field of archaeology very early in their lives have this self-discovery of who they are happen alongside how they're viewing the past for the first time. Um, I think that's really, really beautiful. And I, as more Black folks and Brown folks enter into this field and transform this field, I think it brings a humanity that hasn't been afforded to us in the past of how we show up and then how we can show up to help articulate the lived histories of the people that came before us. And I just want to add, especially Maya, your question around the sort of inclusion of Black studies in this discipline. I feel like the viability of archaeology as a discipline is really going to rely on its interdisciplinarity and the ways that practitioners really strive to navigate and operate within a realm of interdisciplinarity. And my own experience with that, I remember as an undergraduate student reaching out to Dr. Maria Franklin at the University of Texas when I was seeking out programs for my graduate studies. And I knew I wanted to do African diaspora archaeology. I knew I wanted to do African diaspora archaeology at a university that had a viable Black studies department, because I knew that if you didn't have Black studies on your campus, then you didn't have an intellectual community that was really geared towards Black political thought, which is what I knew coming into the field was necessary to really do African diaspora work in this discipline. So I got my master's in African and African diaspora studies at the University of Texas at Austin with the knowledge that the kind of work I wanted to do, the kinds of questions I wanted to ask of the past required that I had a theoretical grounding that was more expansive than what my anthropology department could provide me. 
So I just wanted to add that part in terms of really thinking about the necessity for interdisciplinary studies. And when it comes to the arts, as Justin mentioned, so many of us are involved in artistic practice, but it's that artistic practice that quite literally opens up the spaces and the questions that we ask of our research. As Gabrielle mentioned, thinking about her work as a ceramicist and thinking about decorative motif, but also the, the kind of labor that goes into the production of ceramics is something that she quite literally can tend to because it's something that she's practiced as well. So she could talk about the bodily impact of that. When it comes to my own work around craft production and thinking about the making of jewelry, but also about the clothing itself, my work right now focuses more on ready-made clothing. But if you think about clothing of the enslaved, then you're actually thinking about a deep practice and a lot of knowledge necessary to cut cloth to sew to get like the, the kind of necessary knowledge around dyes and locally produced dyes. So all of that, when you think about it as a creator, allows you to think not only about the skill sets necessary, but the labor and the body involved in those movements. So I think it also provides that sort of framework to the research that we do. And in terms of thinking more broadly about identity formation, what I've been able to glean from the artists that I'm in conversation with, they allow themselves so much more time to play with concepts and ideas than I think we allow ourselves in social science disciplines, right? So I think about the folks I know in performing arts and Omi Ocean Jones, Nigel Whitson, Gabrielle Seville, LaVon Bell, like these are fantastic scholars who quite literally, their job is to play. And in the space of play, they're able to imagine new ways of being in this world. And I wonder what would be possible for us as archeologists to think and, and create and conceive of the past when we allow ourselves to play with the ideas, with the, with the matter, with the objects that we use as our data. And I just want to reiterate too, that this is literally like ingrained into the work that we do. I know Ayana and I, in our classes, constantly reference artists and have students listen to artists talk about their work, interrogate art pieces, produce their own art pieces. And in some cases, we've used it to financially support the archaeological work that we do. So it literally is what is intertwined in the work that we do. And it's, it's interesting because a lot of art and archaeology departments are together in many institutions, but these are seen as two separate or foreign concepts. So I'm excited to see how we can continue to, to expand this notion of art and archaeology. Hi, it's Lauren again. I have another question uh, regarding the discussion on archaeology in the, in the time of Black Lives Matter. Uh, you specifically talk about the overburdening of a specific faculty in, in terms of mentorship uh, as kind of a, a labor discussion. And as graduate students, uh, we also often find ourselves in smaller mentorship roles um, in terms for undergraduates or younger graduate students. So as students ourselves who are trying to develop our own ideas in the field, you know, how can we be accomplices in helping take some of the mentor burden off of our, off of our BIPOC faculty and other members? I'll do a microphone snap just so that you can <laughs> reiterate the importance of that question. But I'll also say it is not your responsibility. This is the university administration 
and restrictions and pressures put on by colleagues at some of our institutions. As graduate students, you have your own set of demands and responsibilities. And as a former graduate student, I can tell you, we were also overtaxed and working, doing things that we had to do. With that said, it's, I think right now, the expansion of the field and bringing more people into this is what is going to offset some of these responsibilities and these duties. I think recognizing the labor that individuals do is critically important. Our institutions aren't set up necessarily to uh, capture metrics for the work that we do and how much is actually put into it. Um, and that goes on all levels from graduate students to, to faculty as well. And I mean, a lot of the work that we do doesn't get recognized until it ends up in a publication. And a lot of the work we do will never end up in a publication. So we have to find unique ways by which to either continue to work in a way that's healthy for us, or in some ways to create it in a, and translate it into a metric that the university understands. And I think that's up to each individual academic to see how they want to do that and to make that work for themselves. But as a result of that, you know, we do see a lot of burnout. We do see a lot of people leaving the field. And I know I personally have told individuals not to enter this field uh, because of some of those very same issues as well. This brings to mind uh, an article that I co-wrote with two other graduate students called Anti-Racist Archaeology, Your Time is Now. Um, it was published in the SAA Archaeological Record in 2020 uh, with myself and Kim Ike and Gabby Amoni Hartman. And we discussed this very issue because our perspectives aren't only as graduate students, but as people that are looking into what our next steps are. And as Justin said, whether or not we even want to continue in, in the academic field in certain ways, this experience that we've had, I think that we are in a space and time where there's a lot of social capital and especially for white scholars and seeming to be aligned with Black issues, with sort of politically correct issues. It's a very sexy to seem like you're doing community archaeology or that you're um, at least conversant with a lot of the topics that we study. But I think we're also aware of the fact that that interest is very temporary, that before there wasn't a large interest by the white community what we're doing. Um, we were doing that work and we'll continue to do that work when we don't necessarily have that same support or that same interest. And so in the background, while all of that is happening, we are doing a lot of emotional labor, a lot of community work, like Justin said, that won't get recognized in ways that are counted as valid or important by the institutions that we're in. And that even thinking of, you know, in my own trajectory, do I want to go into academia as a professor? Do How do I want to engage in this space? Thinking about the things that I want to lend my energies to and whether or not that will count toward a tenure track position, whether or not I will have to sort of bifurcate my time between the things I love and care about and the things that I have to do. And so, you know, I think that in expanding how graduate students, professors, anybody that's engaging with this work, we have to expand how we recognize and celebrate and make count the work that we're doing in very real ways for people. We can't eat off of no money. We can't use all of our energies and all of our times to do everything. We can't be spread around so thin. Um, I myself have had mental health issues directly from being spread thin and being expected to do so much for not just myself and not just for 
the community and not just for the future and for the ancestors, but for a lot of my white colleagues as well. And so, you know, these are really real things that impact all of us. And I think that as we grow the diversity in the communities that are involved in this, we also need to grow that community support and how we support each other and also what we ask from our white colleagues as well that may not be thinking about those things as they move through their own careers. This is Jordan raising another question, uh, speaking on artistic nuance and the identity of archaeology. How can we prioritize knowledge production within community and outside of academia? And how might this shift our thinking and practice in terms of monument and memorial? Y'all are coming with some real questions. These are, <laughs> these are the things that keep us up at night. It's interesting, you know, we just had a conversation recently with some other archaeologists about this, this very idea of how, because oftentimes we're expected to do these things in silos and kind of on the fly because we haven't seen them necessarily done before. And I think collectively we're starting to think through what is working, what has worked, what doesn't work, you know, how the nuances to all of this. Um, for me, I think a large part of it is an, an active engagement with local artists and the things that they have been producing and artistic practices. And in some cases that might be in the places we work, in other cases it might be in other related contexts. Um, I'm even thinking of Dennis Williams, who's a Guyanese archeologist who founded the archeology span program in the University of Guyana, who was also an artist, an established artist in Guyana. And the ways in which we literally, again, incorporate those two um, becomes critically important. I think it's also important to empower community members to engage in artistic practice through different means. I mean, if they if it's a thing of supplies, if it's a thing of providing space, studio space, um, all of these things are things that we can begin to think creatively around and how to support art in the arts. Again, Gabrielle mentioned she works very closely with a, a colleague of ours in St. Croix who provides very much of this space and programming um, to empower communities. So I think we, we need to take a look at successful cases around us that have worked and begin to, to see how we can braid them together. That sort of brings us all to something that we've all been thinking about uh, in one way or the other, about the history and politics of defaced statues and monuments in museums and heritage sites over the centuries in both colonial and powerful you know, kingdoms or communities of the past and how they have been written over time and how that's been conveyed to a lay audience or even to us as historians or archaeologists and how we approach them. And I, you know, I found it really interesting how all of you brought uh, out in your essay, The Future of Archaeology is Anti-Racist, of white supremacy statues and the role of public monuments, museums, and the public sphere in particular. You give the example of, and I quote, reducing care guidelines and prioritizing the preservation of damage are already being considered Keeping up defaced and destroyed monuments has been proposed as a striking alternative to removal. The possible display of damaged monuments in museums cut through some of the risk of reinforcing white supremacist history in white spaces. It would be very interesting to know how all of you have thought through this. I can definitely just add briefly that particular quote, you know, that piece is a very polyvocal piece. There are several authors on it. Sion Ure Michael, who is the new director of the Restorative History Center at the Smithsonian National Museum of American History, was really our point person when thinking about 
museums, but also on monumentality and that particular piece and also on that webinar that we did in June of 2020. And the Restorative History Center right now has actually done a lot of work during the sort of uprisings of 2020 to gather and collect material culture from protests to be part of um, exhibitions that really talk about this present moment. Um, so I'm, I'm really excited to sort of think really expansively about monumentality and conversation with my colleagues like Sion. And also, you know, Justin and I are doing work around the monumentality and commemoration of the transatlantic slave trade and conversations with scholars like Tara Roberts, who's a Nat Geo fellow, is also a part of this other fantastic podcast doing this work, but really thinking about what it means to envision monumentality of the transatlantic slave trade submerged and underwater, to think about what the bodily experience of memory is. Um, and that really ties a lot into diving with a purpose and what it means to actually have Black bodies breathing underwater in spaces and scenes of crashes in the Atlantic that quite literally resulted in the deaths of hundreds at times of enslaved Africans. So there are a lot of ongoing conversations thinking very expansively about monumentality and thinking beyond the sort of traditional physical statue that we see now, but other ways that monuments can be living, breathing that really tend to the sort of ways in which our histories should be shifting and transitioning over time. There's so much more we could discuss today, but unfortunately, that will have to be the last word for this episode of Sapiens Talkback. Thank you so much for sharing your insights and experience with us. Sapiens Talkback was developed in collaboration with the Indigenous Archaeology Collective and Society of Black Archaeologists with special help from Dr. Sarah Gonzalez. Special thanks also to SHIP Colwell and the production team at Sapiens, the Wenner Grand Foundation for Anthropological Research and House of Pod. This episode was made possible by financial support from the Scripps Center for Marine Archaeology at the University of California, San Diego. We want to thank our panelists for helping shape our conversation today, Jordan Griffin and Lauren Clark from the University of California, San Diego. Thanks also to the member organizations of the Archaeology Center's Coalition for supporting Sapiens Talkback. You can find more information about their work at archaeologycoalition.org. Radio Science is a member of the American Anthropological Association's podcast library. This episode was produced at Cornell University by Adam Smith, Anna Whittemore as an engineer, and Rebecca Gerdes as a production advisor. Cornell University is located on the traditional homelands of the Gaikohono, the Cayuga Nation. The Gaikohono are members of the Haudenosaunee Confederacy, an alliance of six sovereign nations with a historic and contemporary presence on this land. The Confederacy precedes the establishment of Cornell University, New York State, and the United States of America. We acknowledge the painful history of Gaikohono dispossession and honor the ongoing connection of Gaikohono people, past and present, to these lands and waters. And we encourage you to investigate the indigenous histories and living communities connected to the places that you occupy. Be sure to tune in next week for the next episode in the Sapiens podcast series called at the heart of it all. And then the following week, check back in with us here at Sapiens Talkback, when our guests will be Professor Keisha Supanand and heritage activist Lenora McQueen. 
I'm Maya Diedrich. And I'm Aisha Martin. Thanks for listening.